Were you surprised at how easy it was? I mean, it seemed like you guys came out of the box, and all of a sudden they were hit records. And uh, was well, that a surprise, or did you? Oh, it was a surprise, but we didn't come out of a box. I mean, we paid our dues, so to speak. I mean, we played at all the dives and had beer cans thrown at us and an audition for everybody. And we played for a, a few years before, you know, a couple of years before. And um, so we, we like with the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, you. I think the reason they were good is because the, I mean I know the Beatles had done Hamburg and everything else, but that we'd 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 played at all the 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 rough places and the the places where they really give you a hard time and you've got to be really good. I mean before we ever made a record, we were on a there was a, a, a dancehall circuit here, which was called the Mecca Circuit, which um, had 300 they were called dancehalls in those days throughout the UK. I mean, they held each one held from anything from three to six thousand. The one we were playing in held six thousand. And um, before we ever made a record, we we won the gold cup for for being the most popular group on the circuit because um, for drawing the biggest audience. We were drawing six thousand people a night. You know, um, that's before we ever made records. So we were basically a live band. What was the because because you guys were so early, you and the Beatles mm. and, and stuff. What was the English See the music. What was it like before, uh, before you guys exploded? American. Yeah. I mean, what we used to play. I mean, at all, all the clubs and things. I mean, I was influenced by people like Elvis Presley, um, Little Richard, Chuck Berry. I mean, it was really American. I mean, America started rock and roll, and I think that's what we were all weaned on, and that's what we used to play. I think the reason for the English explosion, as it were, or invasion, or whatever you want to call it, was. I mean, when I was born, and the same as all the all my other contemporaries, we would go into what they called national service. In other words, you're drafted at 18 years of age into the forces, whether it's the army, navy, or air force. And we were the first generation that wasn't drafted. I mean, three years before they stopped the draft. And I think that they caught people at that age, at 18 where you're the most um, expressive and you're, uh, I don't know, you, you, you're expressive, you want to do new things and, and, and all that was knocked out of you by being put into the military. And we were the first generation that wasn't. And so therefore it wasn't a preconceived thing. And in America I felt that um, rock music was individuals and if you take away um, people I mentioned before. I mean, most of the artists, they were, for, I can't think of, for lack of a better word, not manufactured, but they were, everything is geared to write for the teen magazines and the right thing to say and I don't smoke and I don't drink or whatever. In other words, they were, they were told or groomed. It's really a bit like the old sure, Hollywood yeah, star system. Yeah. Whereas all of a sudden this happened in England and bang, everybody took off. And somebody would ask you on television what you felt, and you just say what you felt. And it was nothing, no preconceived ideas at all. And I think that's what really warmed to the American audiences, that um, people were being themselves. And it wasn't the sort of thing, well, go on and be controversial. I think the first lot to be controversial on purpose were the Rolling Stones. Um, because, I mean, we, the DC-5 had hit off and the Beatles had hit off, and so therefore, they went to be controversial. I mean, apart from they made excellent records, and it worked. But I think 
primarily everybody was they were themselves. I mean, I, I mean, I own a series called Ready Steady Go, which is the first of the rock series in England, most popular one where the Beatles and the Stones, everybody appeared. But you go on there live on a Friday night. And if somebody asked you something, you said what you felt. Or it was no, if the camera shot you up the nose, there was no great lighting. It was live, raw, and magic, like the records were. You know. Why did you think you could handle it all? You were the, you were maybe the only artist that sure. ever produced, managed, wrote. Sure. Well, initially, um, it was because. <coughs> sorry. You, you're just doing it for a book, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. No. Fine. I'll turn the volume down on this. Um, uh, no, initially we, I mean, I went and we auditioned for record companies, but again, in those, idea, in those days, it was a bit like America, whoever was popular at the time, and like Cliff Richards and the Shadows, they would, you would go for an audition and they would try and clone you and be another Shadows or whatever, whoever was popular. And that wasn't where the DC5 were at. Um, and so therefore we failed the auditions and yet we were packing them out in, in the clubs and dance halls and I thought well the easiest thing is to make her, uh, I know the sound that we want, we'll go and make a record ourselves and I, I didn't have any money and um, I wasn't that educated in a sense, I didn't go to university, I left school when I was 14 and a half. Um, and so I, I crashed the car on a film because I used to do stunt work and film extra work for three years. I mean, it's quite fun because they'd say, what have you been doing today? I said, I've been working with Elizabeth Taylor or Richard Burton. But the truth is, if you sneezed, you'd miss me. You know, I was just one of the many hundreds. Um, and I, I earned 300 pounds and I made the first record. And I went to EMI and I found out before I went what the top artist royalty was for independence, which weren't heard of in those days. but. In other words, other record companies that licensed to EMI. And I went in and um, I thought, well, I'd ask for double. And I went in and I asked for double and they agreed. How did, how did you pull it? Here was a state record company that offered the people I, I honest, or something like that. That's right? right. I honestly feel that they thought we were one-hit wonders or we would have one or two hits and that would be it. Um, but I was very lucky where all my masters came back to me after three years and then um, I just leased them out year by year um, so that I had a favoured nations and the royalties went. How did you, how did you know that, uh, and, and how did you stay out of the clutches of some of the wonderful managers that this Oh, I had them all on. I mean, uh, you see, the thing with the DC5 is we all went to school together, so it was fun. It, we, we got together purely for enjoyment. Um, And so I said to the boys that if we got two top five records, we would then go professional. If we didn't, we would just carry on doing it for fun. And our second record went to number one. I mean, our first one went to 19 because we were covered. The second one went to number one. And I didn't go professional. Everybody thought I was crazy. And I didn't have any money. And it was like you were turning down very big offers. And I said, no, we want to be a top of the bill act. And let's wait to see how the second record does. And every manager and agent in the country was on. 
and I just stayed clear. And um, very lucky to say the ne the record that followed it up went to number one. So then we went professional. Well, it, well it's easy to say you stayed clear. It, it's amazing to have. Yeah, you can uh, plan things, Joe, but yeah. it don't, until they actually come <laughs> off. I mean, I mean, you don't know. I mean, uh, you do what you. I'm, I'm a person that would do what I believe in. And if I if you fall flat on your face, you fall flat on your face. It's so easy when you're talking about other people. If you do something wrong and a record's not a hit. It's very easy to blame the record company, and I'm sure you've had this many times where the artists come and complain to you Everybody that you haven't done this. in the studio. They all want to tell you how great you are when you're getting hit records, but they always want to make an excuse. And I felt that if I made the records and they weren't hits, and it was my... I, I'd made a wrong choice. I mean, a typical example, and I mean, it, fortunately it worked out to my advantage, but over here we'd had five top five records. Num we'd had, I think, two number ones and... A, number, a couple of number two records and I'd written a song called Because and so I wanted it as the fourth single I think it was and EMI said to me look you, you, you know you've had an enormous career on big hit up tempo dance numbers you know you shouldn't do a ballad and I thought well maybe I'm too near to it and maybe this time I should listen and so they wanted to bring out a song called Can't You See That She's Mine but it was on an album, our very first album, which at that time was number two in the English charts. And I said, but surely that would stop us getting number one if we stand a shot at it. And they said, oh no, album sales don't make any difference to single sales. So I thought, well, I'll put it on the B-side. So I went on the B-side of Can't You See That She's Mine. And Can't You See got to, I think it was two or three in the charts or whatever. And it, um, it never got to number one because by then the album was number one. And when it got, came to releasing in the States, by then we'd had five enormous records and I said I wanted Because out and the president of Epic Records at the time refused to release it. And I said, well, I want it to come out. And he said, well, it's not coming out. And I said, well, fair enough, then I'm not going to let you have any more masters. Um, I said, I'm not being, I'm not playing the, the star. I just feel that it's a hit song and after five really big hit up tempo numbers, I think it would make a nice change. So I got this cable from him saying, we will release it, you've got 48 hours to change your mind, but it will ruin your career. So I cabled back saying, fair enough, I'll take that chance. And of course the record was one of our biggest single sellers. I mean, it sold, I think it was two and a half million in the US. How did you get on Epic? Did uh, EMI license it or did you make that deal too? I, I made that you deal. You made that deal too. Uh, in those days, Capital wasn't very big. Yes. Um, I mean, they were a big label, but they weren't that successful. I mean, the Beatles really hadn't hit off. I mean, it changed the whole thing. And I felt that um, Columbia, as it was then, CBS, were like the EMI of America. And you were the only contemporary act on that label? And they were, they'd started a new label, and um, it had only been going a year, and I think they had Bobby Vinton on there. And um, I, I, I met with them, and I felt it was better to go on Epic um, because we would be the first contemporary act to go on the label and um, so therefore that they would work and in fact I didn't find out until I went to um, one of those Columbia conventions at Century Plaza um, in the late 70s um, yeah it was in, in, in the 70s um, and I think it was Clive Davis got up it was either Clive or somebody somebody from CBS and said that 
we had been 75% of Epic's income for, I think it was three or four years, that period, which is quite frightening. I didn't know until after the event. But um, nevertheless, because was a hit, and um, he did send me a cable back and said, you were right. But I mean, I could have been wrong. I mean, you, you can always say it's great after the event saying I was right. I mean, I could have been wrong and we might only have ever had that one number one record and the next one would have been down. I mean, it's... I'm somebody that if I believe in something, I'll go all the way, and if I fall flat, I think to do anything good, you've got to risk falling flat on your face, and be man enough to say, "No, I've screwed it up." Did Did you and uh, was it Mike Smith that uh, were responsible for most of the music of the band? Yeah, I think Mike was enormously talented. I think he had a, a fabulous voice. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. He wrote the songs. Mike and I, yeah. Uh, th there was. A not a contradiction, but there was so much imagery in the Dave Clark yes. Five. Yeah. Was did, did that did the music suffer at all? I mean, did did you have time to go write music? Were you, were you serious about the music as much as you were about the the image? The no, I think I th no, I think the press made the image. I think people make images. They put tags on you. They called it the Tottenham sound because we came from a suburb in London called Tottenham, the same as they called the Beatles Liverpool sound. Really, all it was was a a commercial sound. I mean, I, I, I remember speaking to John Lennon about it many years ago, and I mean, it, it was, you know, it's like, a, a, you don't call it, um, apart from Motown, where it was a sort of, it came from Detroit, I mean, you, and they, they've, they've tried to put takes like the Philadelphia so sound, but it's really a good American sound, and that's what it's all about, and this was an English sound. Um, no, I mean, uh, I think people that, that that put things on your image. It's like when we went and did the Ed Sullivan show the first time and he made a comment about he loved the way that we looked and every American mother would be proud to have us in their home and I think straight away it puts a tag on you. Um, um, but no, I mean, you see, I, whereas the Beatles and, 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 and Paul and especially John Lennon, I mean, they reflected in their songs what was happening at the time, like Bob Dylan did in the States, and what Bruce Springsteen is really doing now. Bruce Springsteen is the 80s Bob Dylan in a way, because he's expressing how America feels in a different way, because he's more of a rock and roller, you know, but it's, uh, it's still the same. Um, our songs were purely for enjoyment. There was no message in the songs. I mean, they were purely get up there, enjoy yourself, pure escapism. And, and and so therefore I didn't profess uh, to want to do, go and do um, message type songs. I, I think John Lennon um, and the Beatles have made incredible message songs, and I mean, uh, songs that depicted the era. Um, I mean, if you talk about commerciality, really, I mean, the Rolling Stones were totally commercial. I mean, their songs, they make great records, but you, I mean, whether it's satisfaction or whatever, I mean, they are commercial records, sure. very well made. Was it an advantage or disadvantage to be pitted against the Beatles as the uh, English press did? The American press did it as much, if not more. Um, no, I mean, there was no rivalry between. We, I've often laughed about it with, with John Lennon and, and, and McCartney in the early days. There was no rivalry at all.
I mean, the press made it up, and it's, it, I suppose it makes good press, but it was no rivalry. I think competition is healthy. It's good, whether it's records, theatre, films, whatever. The more people that buy records, the healthier the industry is. Did the kids who, who, uh, who were Dave Clark fans, were they... Uh on the case about you versus Beatles, did it get whipped up to that? No, all? No, was... no, more in America yeah. than here, where you had the magazines and 16 when they said DC5 versus the Beatles, but there was no... No, I never experienced that with fans in America, definitely yeah. not here, but I mean the magazines in America um, made more out of it, but um, there was no rivalry, competition is good. Dave, how in the world did you get it all done in, in, the, in a, about two or three years? writing all those songs, releasing all those records, touring all that time. How did you ever do that? Well, it's funny, um, looking back now, I mean, I'm involved in Time of Theatre project, and looking back, it was easier with the DC-5. It's funny, it was, um, it worked very smoothly, and I don't think you had any sense of it was taking up all your time. You're doing something that you loved, and I think you would agree with this. I think we're very lucky that what we do for a living is our hobby. I don't know if you feel the same, sure. but it's something that, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't work these crazy hours, right. you know. I mean, it's something I feel very privileged that what I do is something that I enjoy doing. It's not a nine-to-five job. It's but something that's great. You guys were so productive, uh, writing so many songs. They just seemed to pour out. Maybe it was being on tour or whatever. They just seemed to pour out. And in those days, you've got to realise we only had four track, so therefore there wasn't the marathon production that you have today in making records. What, uh, what, was, what was success doing to you, personally? Uh, people screaming, tearing away at your clothes. It was fun, it was lovely. Uh, after a period of time, then you wanted to just get away from it. But, I mean, if you had to choose between the two, <laughs> you'd go for the first, because I think you're lucky enough to achieve that. Um, the thing I think that kept my sanity is I came from a very working class family and um, we were very sort of um, family orientated and all my friends were people that I went to school with and weren't connected with the business so I could go home and get my sanity and, and I would be treated as Dave Clark person and if they didn't like something I mean my family and friends would tell me and that was lovely. Um, I didn't get wrapped up in that show-busy type thing, which I think is, is good, but not all the time, because as soon as you start believing your own press, or believing that you are a star, I think that's the biggest downfall of all. I was going to ask if you, if you took a lot of that seriously. No, because I think that's when people go wrong. I think it's a team. Uh, with the DC-5 it was five of us, with the Beatles it was four, and with the Stones it was all the members, but it's also everybody else that surrounds you to help sustain that, whether you're in a, doing a television show right down to the director or the cameraman, or if I'm in the studio, though I produced the records, I had a great engineer and a good studio, you know, and um, I had a good team of people around me, and it was that team that actually helped make the success. So I was the front person out there with the rest of the boys, but it, you still, without everybody else around you, it's like without the record company, if it hadn't yeah. have been EMI, or we've been with you. It was where, um, as you know, with many acts that you've, that you've handled, whether it's an individual solo act or a group, you've got to have the record company behind you, and there's all that machinery going, and it's a marathon job, as you know to keep it going. It's, it's a whole team. And you had to stay on the case as the manager of the band? To, yeah. 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 Was, there, was there much tension within this band? Any, any no, dis I mean, dissension? Uh, you escaped all that? No. The thing we had 
And I think, again, it's because we went, we knew one another before we ever made it, is that there should be one person in charge. It's like whether it's a football team or whatever, you need one person that's in charge. Um, we would all air our opinions, but I would make the final decision, and then if the boys wanted to go one way and I wanted to go the other, I would go the way that I felt was right, and they would respect that and go along with it. If I was wrong at the end, I'd say, well, I made a wrong mistake. And by, but we would always, it was always very healthy, and so we never had any disagreements. I mean, it was always very healthy discussions. But you ha otherwise you end up with five different opinions and you get split five ways. It's like when you make a record. You know, I mean, you go in and you know what you're going to do first, and I always go in with a framework that I know is going to work, and anything that happens in the studio, you then change it, and it, and it, and it um, you know, it sort of grows from there. Um, but no, I think it was with the DC5. It was one person. That's not to sound flashy in any way. I mean, it, I think it's, it was part of the success that we worked as a team. It was very healthy, and it, the creative input, and it worked as a team, and we were we were all happy. I mean, the last, I mean, there was no agreements at the end. I mean, where it was all a handshake with mates. Why did it stop? Because when I first started, I turned around and, you know, as I said, I wouldn't go professional until we are top of the bill and we had two top five records. And I also said, as soon as the enjoyment starts going out of it, we would start. And after our sixth world tour, and it was like when that whole thing was at its height. I mean, we had our own plane and it was called the DC-5. And you'd always arrive at an airport. I mean, I've got a key to every city in the States. And I mean, you'd have two Cadillac limousines in those days with a Union Jacks on the side and a six motorcycle, police motorcycle escort, and it was like being president or king for a day, you know. It was wonderful. But after a time, you know, it, it got like all we'd ever see. I mean, people would say, oh, it's great, you've toured America, and I've been to every state but Greenland. But all I ever saw was you go to the airport, you get on the plane, you would get whisked off to the hotel, you would enter through the back entrance or through the kitchens and you'd take the top floor or a complete floor, you were locked away. Somebody would go down to the um, the arena or auditorium you were playing, tune up your instruments, we would arrive there secretly at the intermission, go on, take the hold of the second half, and then you'd do a false bow, bow at the end, and, or curtain call, whatever they call it, and then you'd rush off, be put into cars, back to the hotel. The same happened at television studios. And so that's all you ever saw. And after three years of doing that, and, and people always want to hear your hits, and the fortunate thing is the more hits you have, then you can, we used to break them up into medleys. Um, but, I mean, really, you're very blessed to be able to go on and play hits. But after a time, you feel that it's then becoming, people want to ask you the same questions, which is understandable, because they meet you for the first time, and how did you start, where did you come from, and all that. And, and you've got to, in all fairness, you've got to keep up that enthusiasm, and they've taken the time to come in and interview or what you or whatever. I mean, this is the first thing I've done for a long time, going back on the 60s. But you've got to keep up that enthusiasm because um, it's only fair. Because um, they've taken the time. For the first time. Time, yeah. Um, so it's like playing the same songs. Like when we played in the before, we would play three hours a night, and you would put new songs into your repertoire every week, and because you had to keep that audience coming every week after week, and so therefore it was a challenge to keep up with all the new songs and different things. And um, after three years, I felt that I was getting a bit claustrophobic, it was being locked away. So I said, well, let's make this the last tour, and then we'll just concentrate on doing so many 
TV shows a year and so many American network TV shows a year, and that's what we did. And then gradually it wound down, and I and we were. I wanted to go and study drama, and um, at that stage we hadn't been out of the English charts for I think it was 30 months. Every record we bought a record out, and as it started to drop out the 20, we bought another one in set out so we hadn't been out of the top 30 for I think it was 28 30 months and I thought and then we were on a million seller and I said look guys this is the time to stop let's stop while we're ahead because it can't go on forever let's retire gracefully and we were still in our 20s and um, well, how was it to, to decompress after 16 18 top 10 records over all those years and and really then have no records out what was was that hard no no. How about I mean, the rest of the guys? Is it? No, because you see, on the, the couple of years where we hadn't been touring, after the first three years, um, we'd just been doing television shows, so they were all involved there, um, in their own businesses and different things, and so it, it, it worked well. I mean, it was just a, I felt that that was the way. We, we were very fortunate to start with a million seller to go out professionally and to finish that way. And I thought that was the best way to do it, and that's why I then refused to do any interviews and refused to do any television, and I wasn't being big time or whatever. I feel if you're going to drop out and become Dave Clark person, you shouldn't carry on doing things because one doesn't want to live in the past. I mean, I've been misquoted. Um, I did an interview when just before time opened, and, some, and the headline was, Dave was glad it was all over, and I wasn't. Uh, what I said was that I... I can talk about the 60s with great relish and affection. But to go on television and do television interviews and press interviews just to Constantly live in the past, the I didn't want to do that. Now I'm, I'm doing time, pardon the pun, yes. I mean I've got a, a, a new project. I can talk about the project and I can talk about the past with great relish, but I don't want to live in the past. I wouldn't have missed it for the world and I, I think I was very blessed, very fortunate to to have spent my youth in the 60s. I think it was the most optimistic and exciting time in, in the music industry. In generally, for, for, for people, whether it's fashion, any form of the arts, it was a whole culture revolution. Um, but you can't live in the past. It's like a boxer saying, that he's, he's been heavyweight champion, saying, give me one more try at the title. You know, um, Let everybody else have a go, because there are a lot of talented young kids out there that you should let them have a go. Well, what did you do through the 70s? I went, and I went and I I grew a beard and I was audition. I went and took an audition at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in Central because I wanted to study drama. I went under an assumed name and I got it. Fortunately, I got into both. It just takes 30 people. Um, and they auditioned over 3,000 and they take them for three years and you do everything from Ibsen, Chekhov, Shakespeare, Brecht, all the heavyweights that you normally wouldn't do. And um, I did that for three years and I went to Central where Lord Olivia was. The patron at the time, and um, was being Dave Clark a, a problem at all? Yes, it was. Yeah, so I, I went under there, and they didn't know who I was until they called the register out on the first day, and that's the only time they do it to make sure everybody is there, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> and um, that's I think that's the only time I really, I felt myself going changing colour when they called my name and I didn't answer, and it. Mm, um, it's quite funny after because a couple of the people I'm really friends with and they're very talented actors and actresses. One guy said, God, that guy looks like Dave Clark. That's not going to help him. And then when they called out the name, somebody else said, he's even got the same name. He's going to have to change that. <laughs> so it was quite funny because I'd grown this, this big beard, you see. And then the first thing I ever did, I've been, I've been 
as you know in our business, you can go and you can play to 50,000 people or 10,000. I paid a quarter of a million at one concert, but it doesn't matter. Sometimes you go in and for some reason it just doesn't click. The audiences still stand and go wild, but the harder you try, it just somehow the band doesn't gel together. Other times you go in and it's absolutely magical. But everybody will come and tell you how great you are because what you're doing is you're filling out a place and you're, you're earning a promoter or whoever money and they say, oh, you're great, you're fantastic. You've got to know when you're good or you're bad. And the nice thing about going back to drama school was the first thing I did was an Irish play by Sean O'Casey called Juno and the Paycock and I'm not very good with accents. Some people are very talented at it. And the first crit I got was the and this is in front of the whole thirty people. Was the, the silent moments were magic, but as soon as you opened your mouth, forget it. And I thought, well, this is for me, because I mean the accent was awful. I mean after that, I did some good things, Shakespeare and that. But I mean it was good because the people were being honest. It didn't matter who you were. What did you do after that? I I know you uh, you bought the rights to some TV shows. Yeah, I, I went around the world, and I thought I wanted to get go around the world and just get away from it and enjoy yeah. and I did and that's what gave me the inspiration for time I didn't realize how universal music was and that might sound a bit naive but it isn't really because you it's not until you go to places like China and Japan which are uh, non-English speaking countries and you find that all the films and TV programs are dubbed but the one thing that isn't is American and English music they just play it and they and that it made me stop and realize that music really was in universal were these the first songs you had written in 10 years or 11 years, these uh, songs for the show? Yeah, yeah. You hadn't, you were able to step away altogether, that's, mm. boy, that's decompression, yeah. <laughs> yeah. to be able to do that. Mm. And was it hard writing again? No, um, it's something I, time was something, again, which is, it's got a very sp spiritual meaning, I mean, if you win, I hope you come along and see it, and then, uh, which is something which is totally away from the DC-5. Um, it's something no, that I got inspired to do, and the more I got into it, um, the more fired up I got, and the more people said that, oh, you know, it'll never come off, or you won't get so-and-so, and it's like all the people that are on the album, it's, I mean, no, I've got, I don't know if you've seen, we've got a lot of great people, I mean, and everybody would said you wouldn't get them, and they all said yes, I mean, and this is, and unfortunately later came Live Aid and Band Aid, but I started this in 1980. Um, and I, I mean, it's it's meaning that the music industry cares in a way, which is great. Um, no, I, I enjoy a challenge, and if I believe in something, I'll go all the way. So maybe that Sagittarian impulse, and every brick wall, I would still keep going until in the end they keep coming up, and in the end you have to be realistic and say you're not going to go any further. It's like when I bought Ready Steady Go in the seventies. Um, I sat on it for 10 years because I felt it was right to wait until the 20th anniversary and then you could, people could look back and reflect on how good the 60s were and I didn't want the shows bastardised, I wanted them to reflect the era and not sell it off in piecemeal or somebody yeah. else would have got it and just sold it off and, and get every, get every penny they could out of it. You know, um, and I didn't want to do that. My accountant thought I was crazy because offers were coming in left, right and centre and I said no. When the time is right, I'll do it. Unfortunately, we did it, and the—I mean, the, the, we did the cassette first, the video, and it went to number one. There's a series of them, and then we put it out on TV at the original time, 20 years to the day, and it went straight top five in the ratings straight away, and it was very successful. But it's again, you've got to go with the gut feeling, 
And I suppose what success has done for me, when you said earlier, what has it done for you? It's given you the freedom of choice to be in that position, to spend five years on time, or to do something that you believe in. Um, you're not always in that position. Is the theatre, uh, does that, that bring you satisfaction? Uh... Yes, because it's live. It's like a live concert in a way. Every, every day is um, a new performance and the subject like time, you have to see it. It's, there are effects in that that have never been used in live theatre before, so I could have fallen flat on my face. You know, I mean, there were things that you... It's not like making a movie, where if it doesn't work, you do it again tomorrow. You've actually got six weeks to, to, to get it together and convert the theatre, and you've got to... It's got to work. Yeah. Any, of, any of the songs you've had have any special meaning for you still? Uh... 20 years ago, any of those songs that stick out above others? I think the most exciting thing for me was the first getting the first record into the charts, which, which is into the UK charts, and it came in at 48, and that was Do You Love Me. Um, and I always remember that was more exciting than getting the number one. Uh, I suppose our first number one, um, Glad All Over. But Do You Love Me, I think, was the, my first favourite because it, it was the first... It was our first chance success. And, and uh, up to this point, because obviously there's a lot more going to be happening with you, if you could bottle one period of time and put it on a shelf and in your dotage 40 years from now you pull it down and look at it, would be what would that be? Uh, at the start of the recording career or the first visit to the States? Or, yes, I'd say yeah. the first year. Yeah, the first the year. first year, because it happened very quick. It all happened within about an eight-week period and then... You know, it sort of happened the end of 63, and we got our first number one on the... Um, I, I remember it's when record sales weren't enormous, and the Beatles had a number one, I think it was called Please Please Me, which was their biggest single seller. And we were selling, for England, there's a lot of records, 125,000 a day, and we sold over a million, we were still number two. And so we had to sell over, we sold two and a half million copies to get a number one in England, which is unheard of. I mean, today you can get a number one and maybe a hundred thousand. And um, it was exciting, and then to go to America, and it was, the whole thing was the Sullivan show. You didn't realize you're going into 70 million homes at one shot, and it was going in there unknown and coming back with 30,000 people a week later at Kennedy Airport. I mean, it was, it was exciting. It was, um, it was a wonderful experience, and you're meeting people that you've always looked up to and respected. Um, whether it's a big Hollywood movie star or a recording star or people like presidents and stopping you and asking to meet you and and royalty and it's it's, it's wonderful and um, it was great for my family to experience. Very heady experiences. Yeah. It's wonderful. If I had to do it all over again, I would do exactly the same things and. Um, make some of the same mistakes. <laughs> well, you um, didn't make too many. No, but I think the thing yeah. that the f people are always frightened of making mistakes. I think the, s the secret in life is not to be frightened of making a mistake. The secret is not to make the same mistake twice. But still don't be frightened of making another mistake. If you believe in it, you have to go by what you believe in. Have they uh, ever come after you to go on those nostalgia tours at mm. all? <laughs> oh, many, many times. And, and at one stage, this was about three years ago, four years ago, somebody got my home number. And I got a call about three o'clock in the morning. And these people had been on for well, six months and got onto my office and finally they got me here. And this guy got on and said, look, we want to put you on at uh, Madison Square Garden and we want to put you on in the Hollywood Bowl and we want to do this. And it would just be all the major cities. And he said, look, you've already turned down 
$2 million, what do you want? He said, well, I'll offer you three. I said, look, it's not the money. I don't think one can recapture the past. He said, look, son, everybody's got a price. And I said, well, I'm afraid I haven't, and I haven't. <laughs> it's not the money. It's, um, if I thought it was right, I would they're, do it. They're pathetic, those shows. They're really sad. The, I mean, I'm sure you pack out, but you cannot recapture yeah, what you had yeah. in the 60s with something magical. Home, you can't go back. Yeah, can't go home, it's like going back to a place you went to as a childhood on, yeah. or 10 years ago on holiday or as a kid. You go back and it's never as good the second time. You know, um, and I, I wouldn't yeah. want to do that, even if I didn't have a penny. I would rather go and get another job outside of the industry or within the industry. Um, but I wouldn't go back on, on tour. Not, but I'm ashamed, and I couldn't do it. No. We could do it easily, but I think it—you could never better what you did. I mean, like we went to Carnegie. I always wanted to play Carnegie Hall, and so we we managed to get it for, for I think it was two, three days, three concerts, and the response was so big that we had it ended up twelve shows in three days, which was unheard of. So we started at ten in the morning, and we went through it to ten at nine, which was yeah. unbelievable. But can't you can't recapture that I mean it was it was I don't know it was a very special time in the 60s and I don't yeah. think you can well then it was real now it's a, sometimes a desperate reaching it would become back to, manufactured, yeah, manufactured and, and, and somebody, the DC5 people might think we were commercial which we were or we wouldn't a commercial means that you get success whether it's classical music ballet opera whatever if people are coming to the theater and they're putting their bums on the seats whether it's to, to the Royal Opera House or you're selling classical music or whether it's the Beatles, the Stones, the DC5, whoever. If you appeal, people buy records. If you don't appeal, well, then you're becoming self-indulgent. So the word to me, commercial, means appealing. Yeah. Well, to George people. Benson said it, you know, when jazz people put him down for selling records, he says, nobody ever started to make a non-commercial record. He says, you make records yeah. to sell, that's yeah. what you do. Well, I remember Richard Burton saying to me once, it's, I paid my dues in theatre. So now people are knocking me for getting a million dollars on a film. But, uh, you know, <laughs> why? You know? And it's, you know, you, you pay your dues. And I mean, no, I was very lucky. I enjoyed every moment. Terrific.